to Ecclesiastes 3, that's page 554, if you're using one of the Bibles from the seat rack in front of you. We began the series last week. While you're turning there, uh, let me remind our guests in particular, hopefully you received this connection card as you came into the service today, and if you did not, uh, take one out of the seat pocket in front of you. Um, on the front side and the back side, there are QR codes. Now, the one on the, the front will direct you to our out-the-door handout. It's a digital bulletin. We print a few copies every week for those who prefer not to use you know, smartphones, electronic devices, and such like that. But I wanted to remind you that if you, whether you're a guest uh, or you know, a longtime member, if you go to the out-the-door handout, there is a link there that will get you into the full growth group uh, page where the descriptions of the various groups are there and uh, sign-up is available for you. And even though those officially began last Wednesday, you can join at any point. Uh, obviously, some of those studies build week to week, but there's not one group that would say, sorry, you're too late to the game. Uh, you can't join our group. We want you to be a part of a growth group. And you say, I'm new here. I'm not a member. Not even sure I'm going to stay around at Gospel Hope. Not even sure I'll be in Utah for that long. Hey, for as long as you're here, jump into one. It's a great way to build relationships, relationships and to open God's Word together, uh, studying various topics. We're going to try to highlight uh, at least one group per week for the next several uh, weeks. So Josh and Katie... Uh, highlighted their group this morning, and uh, we'll, we'll have more of those in the coming weeks. Uh, a variety of topics and even a variety of age groups the, that we're trying to serve in this particular way, so we're excited about that. Last week, toward the conclusion of our first message in this series on the book of Ecclesiastes, we jumped all the way to the end of the book chapter 12 and verse 11, where Solomon said the words of the wise are like goads, or that is prods, like cattle prods, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. And if you're reading that in the English, your, uh, your version probably capitalizes the, the description or title of shepherd, and that's because it has clear reference to God himself. And the wisdom of God, like a cattle prod, is designed to get us moving in the right direction. Some of us are as stubborn as cattle sometimes and saying no to God. No, I like where I am or I like the direction I'm going. And God in his wisdom and kindness will prod us to move in the right direction. Secondly, Solomon says the wisdom of God serve like nails. Nails that are designed to secure the framework of our lives. And every week, as you pass by that construction project out back, you ought to think to yourself, there's a visible illustration of the truth Solomon was setting before us, that God's wisdom are like those all-important nails that hold the frame and structure together. Now, at the very end of Ecclesiastes 2... Uh, where we wrapped it up last week. And just since your Bible's open to chapter 3, you can glance backwards a little bit. Look at verse 26. Solomon writes, For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. 
And remember, we touched briefly on the fact that pleasing God is another way of saying the one who serves God, the one who surrenders his life and will to God and says, show me the path uh, in, in which I should go and I'll do it. Show me your commands, instruct me, I'll, I'll obey. So that's the one who pleases God. And God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Now Solomon is not saying that it's vanity and striving after wind to serve the Lord. No, he's actually saying it is vanity. You're chasing the wind if you think that you can just chart whatever course you please, walk whatever, whatever path you believe suits you best, and ignore God. The term sinner, as we translate it into the English, actually has the idea of somebody who misses the path. They miss the markers that God has laid out, and, miss, and there are other places too where it means to miss the standard of God's law, to disobey. But I think even in light of Ecclesiastes, it, it makes a, a bit of a poignant uh, picture for us that this person is missing the goal or path of what is right and good and best, the path that God laid out for himself. And you know, dear friend, if you've been trying to chart your own path today, there's really good news for you in the message in front of us. Because God didn't create you to chart your own path. He actually created you to find his path and to walk in it. And he says, for those who please me, for those who serve me, I give several things. And at the end of, or the beginning of verse 26, he says, I give wisdom and knowledge and joy. Now, chapter 3 is actually um, a piece of the explanation of how God really does bring wisdom and joy in particular together in the ordinary moments and days of our lives. So for those who say, I will live my life in service to this God, uh, there is wisdom and knowledge and joy to be found, and that's what we're going to see. So follow along. I'm going to read the first 15 verses. That's all we'll have time to address this morning. Uh, but you follow along as I read. This is the word of the Lord. Ecclesiastes 3.1. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful 
and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure, or remember from last week, find the good in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I also perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, once again, we call upon you to fulfill your good and gracious promises to illuminate our hearts that we might understand your truth to awaken our souls that we might believe this life-giving word and to quicken our spirits and wills that we may eagerly obey all that you have set before us would you meet us personally in this time and we ask spirit of god that you would have absolute sway in our hearts We are stubborn so often, we are foolish, we are willfully ignorant, but would you please exercise your sovereign, gracious power in our hearts and subdue everything within us that resists you this morning and lead us in the path everlasting. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Now here in verse one, Solomon in a sense puts out a thesis or a proposition. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? For everything, he writes, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And there are two key thoughts that are kind of wrapped up into these terms, season and time. For everything, Solomon says, and he's using a word that means the totality of life as we know it. For everything, there is a season. And the word season has reference to appointed times. You think of it in in terms of a calendar change, and we are entering uh, fall, technically still, I guess, at the end of the summer, um, but nonetheless, we, we will arrive very soon in the official season called fall. Well, that illustrates it, and, and you've lived long enough on planet Earth to know it happens every year. It's inevitable. We really can't stop it. Summer may hang on a little longer. We even have terms like Indian summer. But those things always give way to fall, and fall always gives way to winter, and then winter gives way to spring. They've been appointed by God. You can actually go back to Genesis 1 and read uh, some of the specific terminology and description there of how God created this world and appointed uh, times and seasons. So God appoints the times. Second of all, God arranges the times. That's a little bit of a nuance for us, but it is still important for us Uh, to understand that God has actually arranged the moments of your life and mine in a particular way for a particular purpose. And did you notice that in the same way that Solomon uses the term for everything, he now says for every matter. Everything from the current events of the world to the personal business of your individual life, the movements uh, of our community, the course of history are included here. And so the, what follows is a poem of explanation. It's quite remarkable. Uh, now, some of you, if you've never read Ecclesiastes before, say, hey, I think there's a song that uses those words, right? I thought Pete Seeger wrote that back in 1959. Well, no, he, 
he borrowed uh, from Solomon. Or maybe you say, no, wasn't it the birds who recorded it? Yeah, they're the ones who took it to number one in 1965, which was long before most of us here were born, right? But they actually used Solomon's words. It wasn't their original text. And the poem itself is illustrative of the fact that from the moment of your birth until the moment of your death and everything in between, God is sovereignly in control. And this is, a, this is an important nail to drive into the framework of, of your life. Recognizing God's sovereign control is a great advantage for living life. Recognizing God's sovereign control is a great advantage for living life. If you look at those 14 pairs of significant events and experiences, you begin to recognize something really profound. And Solomon begins by setting these two particular events like bookends, birth and death. God has appointed the day of your birth and he's also appointed the day of your death. Did you know that? He tells us in several places in scripture, the first verse that I want to draw your attention to is Psalm 139, 16 that tells us God saw us before we were born. The psalmist writes, you saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. If you meditate on that for a little bit, your soul might just begin to tremble a little bit. What kind of God is this that he not only knows what will happen in future events, but he actually ordains and appoints? Hebrews 9.27, a New Testament letter, reminds us that it is appointed for man to die once. And after that comes judgment. The day of your death, appointed. You won't cease to exist at that moment, but it will mark the end of this life span. And Solomon is saying that God appoints and arranges everything in between. It's quite a variety of events and activities, and some of them are hard for us to think in terms that, like, God God appointed this hour of weeping. God controls the hour of mourning. And the answer is yes. So these times and seasons that are both excruciating at the one end of the spectrum and exquisite because he also ordained and appointed times of joy and dancing and laughter. But they've all been appointed and arranged by God. Now, there are several questions that begin to emerge with this truth that God has sovereign control over it all, and Solomon puts one of those forward to us. Look at verse 9, if you will. What gain has the worker from his toil? Because you would almost say, well, if God is really in control of everything, then why am I working so hard to do what I do? Is there any point in it? I mean, you, you almost feel a bit of fatalism begin to emerge, right? 
Well, God's going to do what he wants to do. He already laid it out long ago, and I mean, who can stop him? We even read a verse toward the end of this particular passage that says God has done it so that people fear him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. Like, so what am I doing? Well, that's a really good question. It's not the only one that emerges, but it's the one we're going to look at for the next few minutes here this morning. And, and so in answer to that question, look at where Solomon now takes our, our minds and hearts. He says, I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. And remember, when he speaks of toil, he, he's talking about wearisome labor, expending huge amounts of energy in your work. God's business that he has given us, where, where is this going to lead? What are we busy for in the end? Does any of it matter? Well, keep reading. Verse 11 says he's made everything beautiful in its time. Really? Well, this brings us to the, the second nail of wisdom, so to speak, and it's a little longer. But knowing God's ultimate purpose is what I want to describe as a sacred beauty. It's a great advantage for living your life. You see, God calls us as followers of him to take the long view. That's hard because what we know best is the short view, the short term. At any given moment, you and I never have more than a point of view in the grand timeline of eternity. But God, God's view is comprehensive He is the beginning and the end. He sees the beginning and the end. And he sees it all in in real time, so to speak. Although he dwells outside of time. You and I dwell inside of time. We can never really see more than one point of view. Now, we can stack up years of personal experience and history, and and we can talk about things like the trajectory of my life or the circumstances of my life, but we really don't know what the next second holds, let alone the next day or year or decade or century. We have a point of view. God has a comprehensive view of it all, and he's the one who is stepping into some of the confusion and fear and frustration that we live with day in and day out, and he's, and he's telling us, I will make all things beautiful in its time, that is, in its appointed time. So that calls for our faith, and it calls for our patience. Give God time to work. But one of the kindnesses that he has done for us is to fill this book with stories of real people, ordinary people, people who experienced great hardship and difficulty, people who could walk back through those 14 pairs of extremes and say, yeah, let me tell you about my days or months or years of mourning and weeping, of suffering, where I thought I was in the process of being destroyed and broken down, but then God intervened. One of the stories that illustrates this so beautifully, and I actually want to tie it to a, um, 
a, a sermon series that we did a number of months ago from the life of Ruth. But if you were to go back to Joshua and begin to read through how God led Israel finally out of the wilderness and into the promised land, in, in, in Joshua chapter two, you, enca- you encounter uh, a lady named Rahab. She's not an Israelite. She's actually a citizen of Jericho. Jericho is that city where the Israelites walked around it seven times and the walls fell flat. They plundered it fully. But Rahab was instrumental uh, in that uh, first successful battle because she actually gave the Israelite spies a place of refuge and ran interference for them. But one of the remarkable things that we learn about Rahab is that she was a Canaanite part of a very wicked and corrupt culture, and she herself had turned to prostitution just to make a living. But as we read her story and see something emerge from her, it really is quite stunning. Because if you think of all that she must have lived through before this moment, it was darkness and humiliation, it was shame and suffering, because those are the things that a life of sin leads us into. And prostitution is not the only life of darkness and shame and difficulty and suffering. She is among that category that Solomon refers to at the end of chapter 2 of sinners. She's missed the mark. Now, I want to be careful that I don't sound too condemnatory of her because we don't know what kind of hard circumstances or, or the life history behind those choices, but she's not in a good place when these Israelite spies come in, is she? She's a victim of some of the dread consequences of ancestors who came before her. Take it all the way back to Adam and Eve. Sinners who missed the well-marked path of God's wisdom. But in chapter 2 of Joshua, in verse 11, as she speaks with the, the spies, she says, The Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Something had been awakened in her by God where she is looking at life above the sun, to put it in, in Ecclesiastes terms. Because Solomon refers this again and again to life under the sun, under the sun. But he does it to say, hey, lift your eyes higher. You've got to see some things that are higher. And so she does. She is at that moment looking above the sun in faith. And so we read of her redemption from the wicked Canaanite culture. And you know, after Jericho is overrun, at some point she is betrothed and and then married to an Israelite named Salmon. And the birth of their son Boaz emerges in another story that we know and love. Boaz marries a Moabite immigrant named Ruth, and they become the grandparents of King David who took Bathsheba as his wife and brought Solomon into the world. And you begin to line up those three women who, in the estimation of many, have no reputation to be proud of or thankful for, and yet we come all the way into the first century and a once upon a time tax collector, now turned apostle, writes his gospel and recounts not only his personal interaction with the Christ, but records the stories and names and identities of all kinds of other people. But he opens his 
gospel with a genealogy and he includes the names of these three particular women and says they're the ancestors of Jesus. And when you come to those moments, you cannot help but stop and say, that's beautiful. What kind of God steps into the darkness and shame and hurt and sorrow and suffering of women that you and I would pass on the street with no thought whatsoever and says, I'm not only going to redeem you, I'm going to bring you into the very line of my only begotten son. You, Rahab, who have given yourself to countless men, will bring the Messiah into the world. Now, I can tell you that story in six minutes. You can read the entire Bible in 70 hours. But from that moment in Jericho until Jesus came was about 1,400 years and change. That's a long time. But it was the appointed time. Her Savior descended from her womb. We read earlier in the service, I truly meant to make two more slides, but you can turn in your Bibles to Galatians 4. Because Paul actually writes, and this is after Matthew had written his beautiful gospel, including that genealogy. In Galatians 4, verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we, the sinners, might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. What a privilege. How beautiful. And again, Paul writes to the Romans in Romans 5, verse 6. He says, while we were still weak, and and the weakness there refers to spiritual weakness. Like, you're, you're so corrupted by sin. You have no strength even to choose God if he showed up and said, hey, want to come to heaven with me forever and be forgiven of all your sins and cleansed and be made new? You had no strength to do it. Like Rahab, stuck in Jericho in a life she never would have wanted for herself. But Romans 5, verse 6 says, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So the fourth box on the right side of the screen was not a late sacrifice. It was a perfectly timed sacrifice because Christ before the foundation of the world had been appointed to that time, to that very hour. Christ died for the very sinner's from whom he was descended. And as God did for Rahab so long ago, he now calls each of us 
who know that we are sinners to leave our own dark shame and painful suffering and enter into his household by faith. True sons, full heirs. That's beautiful. And God makes all things beautiful in its time. See, the power of God's sovereign work through time always and inevitably produces a sacred beauty. And that's why it's to your advantage to to buy God's wisdom, so to speak. To believe it. And to begin to interpret your life through his wisdom, rather than what most of us do, is we try to interpret his wisdom through our experiences and the confusion of this life. That'll get you in trouble. And this means that our wearisome labor actually has a purpose in God's design and that it is important to the fulfillment of his eternal purposes. In the same way that Rahab's life uh, post-Jericho was critical to Messiah's entering the world. And so was Ruth's. And we went through that whole story of of seeing how God brought her back with her mother-in-law at the right time. It was barley harvest and a guy named Boaz that she could not even begin to imagine becoming her husband, was there positioned at the right time. God's timing is impeccable. His timing is perfect. And we cannot fully understand our place in the world at this moment, but we may fully trust that what God is doing is beautiful, and therefore what he has called us to do, the business that he has given to us to be busy with, it matters. It's a great advantage to know that. Keeps you from despairing when you go back to the office on a Monday morning, you're like, what are we doing here? Keeps you from despairing as you re-enter the classroom and you're like, you know, we're a month into this thing now and these kids are terrible. And it keeps you as a student from despairing when you say, we're a month into this. My teacher should have figured it out. He's terrible. And whether you are doing the work of an accountant or law, or medicine, or construction, whatever it is, it actually matters because God has this master plan. And he's making all things beautiful. Now go back to Ecclesiastes 3. Look at verse 11 with me again because there's another little wrinkle. This is also helpful, although initially I'll admit it feels frustrating. He's put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Oh, what, what, what is this all about? I love the helpful words of Walter Kaiser, an Old Testament scholar, um, wise and helpful and humorous, by the way. I heard him speak long ago, and he actually was a very, very funny man. But he says, this quest, this, qu- th- th- this thing of eternities in our hearts and we know it, we try to explore it and find it, but like we can't. The quest is a deep-seated desire, a compulsive drive, because man is made in the image of God to appreciate the beauty of creation on an aesthetic level, to know the character, composition, and meaning of the world on an academic and philosophical level, and to discern its purpose and destiny on a theological level. 
Every one of us knows that there's more to life than what we can see at any given moment, more than what these finite bodies and minds can grasp. And that's what makes us build telescopes and microscopes. It's what inspires us to engineer spacecraft and send unmanned ships at great cost to the moon and to Mars, and we hope beyond. It's what makes a four-year-old ask why a thousand times a day. It's what motivates some people to study psychology and others to postulate about dark matter. Who cares? But they do. It's what moves us to spend 40 years looking for things that these these physical eyes can't see because they're so small or so, so large. It's what lies behind running a marathon or exploring the South Pole or researching nanotechnology. God has put eternity in our hearts and yet he has fenced us in. And as big as this backyard is uh, of the known world and even solar system and beyond as, as we're exploring it, we haven't come to the end yet. We're like little children who are fenced in and we love this big yard. And, and you know, our dad has, has planted and constructed and furnished it with all kinds of wonderful things, but we keep looking over the fence going, yeah, but there's more, isn't there? And, and God, the father figure, is in the, you know, like, back deck standing there going, yeah, there's a lot more. You just can't get there now. You cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. It's a hard thing to accept our finiteness, isn't it? Often we say, I wish God would tell me why. I wish he'd show me what he's, what he's really doing here. Yeah, you have eternity in your heart, and you know there's more to it than what you can see. It's just maddening that you can't see it all. That's actually a good gift from God because it, it does a couple of things. One, it keeps you humble. And number two, it keeps you dependent. And when you are humble enough to accept your limitations, including your sinfulness, you're actually perfectly positioned for the next two important conclusions that Solomon leads us to. Look at verse 12. Keep doing that. Verse 12. Solomon says, I perceived... Or, or you could also understand that I, I've come to conclude, I know, based on this exercise he's gone through, writing the poem, drawing some uh, inferences and conclusions out of that, verse 12, he says, I know that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. So it brings us back. Here's a third nail. Doing God's work, serving, is a great advantage to living life. Doing God's work, serving him is a great advantage to living life. You see, Solomon says there's nothing better than doing God's work. And, and as you do it, you can be joyful. It, it's not like an artificially manufactured joy. It's the joy that rises from understanding He's all-powerful, he's sovereign, 
and he has sacred beauty that he is leading us to and he's growing right now. Yeah, even, even through the mourning and the sorrow and those moments where you feel like you, you personally are dying or you're watching things dissolve around you. Even through all of that difficulty and darkness, God is moving things forward unfailingly and, uh, and inevitably to that sacred beauty. Your ordinary work matters. That's why Solomon says, do good. And that's just a big broad concept for just bring benefit to your world. Do those things that are helpful. Do those things that will create uh, welfare, uh, well-being for others. And that kind of goodness is, first of all, it, it originates in the heart of God, but it's the kind of goodness that he reproduces in his children. I was thinking how kind God is. You know, he's not looking for superstars and celebrities uh, to, to bless his plan or, you know, to push his strategies forward. And for all that we preach and post and initiate regarding global causes, even in the name of Christ and radical living and, uh, you know, being on mission, and, and there's a place for all of that. Passages like this help us to see the significance and power of the ordinary day-to-day routines that we so often take for granted. It's just a part of life. I have to do these things. Oh, no, they, they, there is a sacred beauty already beginning to emerge in those things, and there is a sacred purpose that God is accomplishing through it. He loves the ordinary, finite people that fill up this room. And he says, eat and drink and take pleasure or see the good in all your toil, in all your exhausting labor. There's goodness there to be found. And then Solomon says, this is God's gift to man. Doesn't that elevate it? So go order the tostada salad at Cafe Rio for lunch today and and drink down a glass of cold horchata it's a gift from God. And you say, ooh, well then take your taste buds to whatever you know, feast table would make you go, thank you God, these are good gifts. And also get up in the morning and go back to that job that is so hard and so exhausting, but know that there's a gift God is giving you even in that. Because this life you know right now is not all there is to life. You have a point of view right now. God sees the beginning from the end. And he's like, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, dear children, it will all be beautiful in its time if you serve me. The one who chooses not to serve, that's the guy who's accumulating all this stuff just to lose it in the end, along with his soul. That's vanity and chasing after wind. But God's children are not living vain lives and God's children are not chasing the wind. Kristen shared a powerful article with me this week. It's written by Monica. Um, I don't even know how to pronounce her last name. My best guess would be Gayen. Um, finally here, here's a little part of the quotation. But she's a wife and homeschooling mother of five children. Previously, she practiced law, served with InterVarsity, uh, which is a well-established uh, evangelistic disciple-making um, organization. And, and the introductory paragraph says, now she writes and speaks on topics focused on motherhood and missional living. I'm going to read more than just the little portion that 
is on the screen, but hang with me here for a second. And this applies way beyond mothers, but this was just, it was powerful. The glory of a mother's rescue mission hides in small moments. Even if no one else sees and delights in a mother's labor of love, God does. In fact, no one sees more or delights more than him. The mundane, however, will not last forever. God has made everything beautiful in its time. Though mothers now yearn for eternal assurances for their children, it is not for us to know what God has done from the beginning to the end. That's Ecclesiastes 3:11 and 12. Anxieties pile on because the weight of eternity presses in. How will today's messes translate into eternal joy with our children in the presence of the king? Little moments offer opportunities for big prayers, not as an oppressive obligation, but as a way of casting anxieties on the God who cares for us, 1 Peter 5, 7. When Kristen read that part this week, I'm like, hey, we were just there a couple of weeks ago, 1 Peter 5, 7. She continues, God has promised our labor in Christ is not in vain, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. So we cast our anxieties at the throne during moments when it seems his kingdom has not yet entered our homes. And for some of you, that's every day, right? Like, Lord, please rescue this hellion that lives with us. Prayer surrenders our desire for certainty about their salvation. Let me read that again. Prayer surrenders our desire for certainty about their salvation and frees us to share gospel hope with our children without measuring results. Massive prayers are more than an invitation for God to hear our pleas. They also invite him to speak back to us. When we pray, the indwelling spirit counsels moms toward Scripture's glorious promises to us and our children. And he exchanges our proneness to unravel for eternal eyes, power, and joy to labor and trust him as we continue to intercede for the little hearts in our care. Isn't that good? Now, that article goes on. There's more. I just didn't want to read the whole thing for the sake of time. God means it when he says, first of all, your work matters. And with that, I really do want to package wisdom and knowledge. That's what gives you perspective on this sacred work and joy. What's the joy resting in? The joy rests in him, that he's good and gracious that he is truly sovereign and that he really is working for a sacred beauty. And you know, that's not just true for moms who wrestle with little ones today and wonder, you know, are are they gonna make it into heaven one day? That is true for every single one of us in the business God has given us to be busy with. Some of you battle discouragement, feeling like your life doesn't matter, like your work doesn't matter. You're just, you know, earning a paycheck, and you're even starting to wonder, is it worth it? And God's standing in front of you today going, yeah, it is. Hang in there. 
and you may feel like I'm stuck in a time of mourning. Well, take heart. God, God moves us through those seasons. Laughter will come. Say, I'm a Baptist, so I don't dance. Well, you know, <laughs> trust God. He'll, he'll give you dancing feet at the right time. He's in it. Trust God because he is sovereign. Now, very quickly, look at verses 14 and 15. Solomon says, I know that whatever God does endures forever. That's a good thing. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. That's a mysterious thing. God has done it so that people fear before him. You know, you get a little taste of that. That's awe. You have a little taste of that when we recount the story of Rahab, you know, giving way to Ruth, giving way to Bathsheba, bringing Christ in the world. You're like, oh, wow. You you have a sense of awe. Well, what's it gonna be when the final chapters are written and we're all in his presence? Mind-boggling. So his work endures forever. His work produces awe. And finally, his work redeems and recovers. Uh, This is just tucked in there. It actually doesn't outline particularly well, but it's a true statement. That which has already been Uh, which is already has been that which is to be already has been and here's the little phrase that surprises us and like a full sermon should be preached on this God seeks what has been driven away and and commentators and and students of this text believe that it suggests and I'm I'm quoting Philip Riken here suggests that God is looking to redeem the past and not simply to render judgment by his grace he will recover and restore what seems from our vantage point to be lost forever I mean, isn't that an amazing thought? Your life from beginning to end is not only sovereignly controlled by God, but it is being used by God to accomplish beautiful things. Your life matters because there is a God above the sun who is working all things together for his glory and for your good. And one day, we will stand with Rahab and Salmon and Boaz and Ruth and David and Bathsheba and Solomon. And we will gaze upon the glory of this great God and with them together we will say, you really do make all things beautiful in its time. Would you bow your heads with me, please? I know that's hard for some of you to process. But rather than interpreting God's word through or filtering God's word through your experiences, can you flip that around? And by faith, will you begin to interpret your experiences and circumstances in light of God's eternal truth. And for some of us, that, that means just coming with that, that particular circumstance or experience that's so devastating or confusing or perplexing and saying, God, I have no idea how you would redeem this or restore 
this, but your word tells me you are seeking what has been driven away. I'm trusting you to, to reach back in time and redeem and restore and recover. God, I don't know how anything beautiful could come out of this, but I believe your word and I entrust it to you Very practically, in a functional way, some of you work really hard to be sovereign in controlling your own world. You want to control the people around you. You want to control the circumstances. You want to control the narrative. You want to control it all. And God loves you enough to let you be continually frustrated. And perhaps some of the frustration that you feel, even anger, that runs through your heart today is the result of your attempts to be God. Can you lay that down? Will you? See, that kind of thinking and living falls into the category that Solomon spoke of, of of sinners who actually spend their life in vanity and chasing the wind. You're not God. Please stop trying to be God. Will you bow before the one true sovereign God that's today? and say, Lord, I first of all believe that you are all that you say you are, and I surrender to you. I want to begin serving you today. Will you do that right now? Father, you see every heart. You know every situation. And I pray that by your spirit, you would lead us to that place of sweet surrender of childlike faith, of humble obedience, but let all of that culminate in genuine hope and great joy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.